Hello, everyone, and welcome to the last lecture in the guest lecture series for 2015. It's been a really wonderful year with a lot of amazing guests, and I'm very, very proud and happy to have the Reverend Dr. Malcolm Geith as our final guest in this year's series. So I will introduce him to you shortly after I do a few announcements. Very glad to see all of you here. And after this is over today, please do spread the word that there will be a recording of this lecture available on the MISGARD website so that you can share that with people who couldn't come live. All right, there are a few other very exciting things going on at the MISGARD Institute and at Signum University that I want to tell you about. The big one is that we are in our annual fundraiser. And there's just about a week left in the fundraiser. It actually ends on Halloween. So please do consider supporting Signum University and all the courses that we offer, including the free Muscard Academy classes. We would really appreciate that. Running concurrently with the Signum University fundraiser is the Almost an Inkling Creative Writing Contest that I am hosting. And we've had five weeks so far of really exciting prompts. It's all been flash fiction and short form poetry, and it's been really lively. So in this last week, we're expanding out a little bit, and we have 1,000 word stories on sub-creation. So you create a secondary world in a really short story of 1,000 words or fewer. So please do go to MissGuard.org slash writing hyphen contest and send us your story this week. And then if you're not a creative writer, or obviously for those of you who are as well, you're invited to vote on your favorite entries. So pay attention to uh, that contest this week and the schedule, and the final winners will be announced during the closing fundraiser webinar on Halloween. So I hope that you can be there. And while you're on the website, check out the other exciting initiatives that are going on, such as the MythGuard Academy classes and the Tolkien professors' Lord of the Rings online stream. Those are some of the great things that are going on. All right, well then, without further ado, I'm happy to introduce today's guest lecturer, Malcolm Geith, who's going to speak to us about the truth of imagination in the writings of Lewis and Tolkien. Malcolm Geith is a priest, poet, professor, writer, and rock and roller. He is by fellow chaplain and supervisor in English and theology at Girton College, Cambridge University. He researches and writes about the interface between theology and the arts, particularly theology and literature, and has special interest in Coleridge and C.S. Lewis. He has published a book entitled Faith, Hope, and Poetry, Theology and the Poetic Imagination. And I hope that you've had a chance to check out at least part of that because he may be referencing some of its themes today. And he has written a lot of poetry and theological writing as well, including some beautiful series or cycles of sonnets that I recommend that you check out. He is also one of the cler clergy at St. Edward King and Martyr in the center of Cambridge. He has a rock band called Mystery Train and is part of a jazz poetry performance collective called Rip Rap. So I'm very happy to welcome Malcolm Geith. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. This is a, this is a completely new experience for me. Um, I've never done a webinar before, so uh, thank you, Serena, for sort of guiding me through some of the technology. Um, uh, I once wrote a couple of lines of poetry that said, um, we surf the surface of a widescreen world and find no virtue in the virtual, but I'm determined that we will find virtue in the virtual um, this evening. So thank you for inviting me to speak. Uh, the phrase I've taken for my title, um, the, the uh, truth of imagination, is a phrase that the poet John Keats used in a letter to a close friend 
a letter which subsequently became famous, but at the time, of course, only one person read it uh, in 1817. I'd like to just um, give you a little bit of context of that letter, because I'm going to riff on it in various ways as we come to think about the way in which the extraordinary imaginations of Lewis and Tolkien are actually delicate and sensitive instruments whereby we can come at truth. So I think Serena has, has a, a handout which she can put up, and there's a there's a, a, a paragraph I'd like you to see. And uh, ah, here it is, oh, what joy. So uh, here's a little bit from Keats's letter. Uh, let me read it just um, so that you've got a sense of what it is. He writes to his friend Benjamin Bailey in November of uh, 1817. Uh, I am certain of nothing but of the holiness of the heart's affections and the truth of imagination. What the imagination seizes as beauty must be truth, whether it existed before or not, is a key phrase. But I have the same idea of all our passions as of love. They are all, in their sublime, creative of essential beauty. And he goes on to say, after a few other bits, the imagination may be compared to Adam's dream. He awoke and found it truth. This is an allusion to a bit in Milton's Paradise Lost, where very beautifully, um, God, as it were, allows Adam to dream, and Adam dreams Eve. And Milton hints that in some sense the making of Eve, the bringing of a new reality into the world, is partly drawn from the very imaginings of his own creature, just as he brings the animals to be named. So, so somewhere deep in that patterning is some notion, which of course we will eventually see Tolkien coming towards the sub-creative, or even the co-creative, the kind of participation in the very making of things. Then, finally, in this little bit of the letter, Keats says, I am more zealous in this affair, because I have never yet been able to perceive how anything can be known for truth by consecutive reasoning. So there we see Keats is already operating within, if you like, a kind of polarity or a, or a binary system between imagination on the one hand, for whom he wants to make truth claims, and reason or reasoning, consecutive reasoning on the other, which he's actually calling into question. Now, by doing that, Keats was being really, really countercultural because he was already in the middle uh, of a process, a great change, uh, a great revolution in how we think about things and make the world, which was the beginning of the modern world, which was uh, the Enlightenment, um, the modernist project, there are lots of words for it. Um, if we look back, we'd see that um, before Keats wrote this, really for the last 150 years before that, this big change had been um, in train, whereby a much more ancient way of seeing things, in which myth, story, poetry were seen as conveyors of essential truth, indeed some truths could only be told through myth and poetry, um, that had been replaced, it had been rendered suspect, it had been attacked by those who were beginning to form the scientific worldview, and uh, it had been marginalized. Uh, so uh, probably the, the, the classic text, if we go back a little while, uh, would be it, when the Royal Society, the beginning of modern science, was, was, was founded, and um, Thomas Spratt, who, who wrote his manifesto in a, a book called The History of the Royal Society, famously said that uh, their aim especially in the use of language, was to separate the knowledge of nature from the colours of rhetoric, 
the devices of fancy and the delightful deceits of fable. We're probably familiar with that mindset, that idea that, that there's a kind of big divide between, as it were, the subjective and the objective, and that the objective is the only really true thing and is a world of facts and measurable, quantifiable data, but, as it were, value-free. And that then there's the merely private, interior, if you like, imaginative or fanciful, subjective ranges where all the values are, but somehow they're second class. They're not seen as quite so real. It's almost like a kind of, uh, you're probably familiar with the, the word for the way we know, the study of what knowledge itself is, is called epistemology. And a terrible thing happened, really, from about the mid-17th century onwards, the birth of modernism. It was a kind of epistemological apartheid where we divided everything into either subjective or objective knowledge and then we, we, as it were, privileged what we were then calling objective knowledge and marginalized the imagination. That process had been going on for some time even when Keats was writing and Keats, together with another poet, Coleridge, whom I'm going to return to, were, if you like, protesting and saying, no, wait a minute, don't completely dismiss the intuitions and shapings of the imagination, they may have something to tell us, not simply about what we wish to be, but about what actually is the case. So there's Keats in 1817, uh, as it were privately, in a letter offering a little protest. Well, he at least was living a little bit more closely than we are to a time when, as it were, humankind could see with both eyes both with the eye of reason and with the eye of imagination and didn't have this kind of monoscopic view of the world. But if we can fast forward from Keats um, about 120 years uh, into the, from the 1817s into the 1920s and let's take a little look now at the lives of the two writers in whom we're particularly interested and see in that widening split between reason and imagination which characterized modern culture, where they found themselves and what they did about where they found themselves. So if we can go on to, as it were, the next little slide, Serena, on, on my things. Here is an extract from C.S. Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy, which is admittedly written quite late in his life after many things have happened. He's looking back to how it was for him in the 20s. Lewis, you may remember, uh, was, came up as a young man um, to Oxford and then was immediately drafted out and taken into the First World War, was wounded in the Battle of Luz, saw the full horrors, as Tolkien did, of industrialized, uh, mechanized warfare, the full horror of the machine age, dealing death on the Western Front, came back an angry atheist, uh, wrote an extraordinary book of poems called Spirits in Bondage, um, which was very angry with the God who wasn't there. and. Um, and then became, uh, as you may know, not only a classics, but also a philosophy don. And really became persuaded of quite a bleak, reductive, if you like, modernist position in philosophy. But at the same time, he was living this hugely rich, imaginative life, mainly fueled by the great Norse sagas, the stories of Balder the Beautiful and others, listening to Wagner, uh, looking at the great Arthur Rackham illustrations of the, 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 um, the, the, uh, the ring cycle and so on. Um, 
and all these were for Lewis, as it were, even his reading of Virgil, were kind of guilty pleasures. And here's what he says, you have it in front of you. He writes about how it was for him in the, in the probably late 20s. The two hemispheres of my mind were in the sharpest contrast. On the one side, a many-islanded sea of poetry and myth, and on the other, a glib and shallow rationalism. Nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. I don't know if that rings any bells with any of you, but um, it seems to me that Lewis is not simply diagnosing a private dilemma in his own, as it were, split psyche. Uh, I think he's actually put his finger on a fundamental rift and divide that is tearing all of us apart in various ways and is responsible for a great deal of our, the mental pain and anguish, which is such a feature of um, industrialized Western society. This sense that there are things you intuit and know and feel for and can imagine and that shape, that seem to be for you full of the kind of truths that make life worth living. And they're all to you're told those are all not really there at all. And then you face the mere kind of mechanization of everything and even a, a view of yourself and your body as a series of interlocking mechanisms and the unwinding of the selfish gene. And it's impossible to hold those two things together. So you feel this deep split. Now, we might say that Lewis, writing this in the 50s and looking back, you know, how can we trust his account of what it was like to be that person then? But as it happens, and this is something that I've been particularly concerned with in my own research, I wrote the chapter for the Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis on Lewis as a poet, and um, uh, that led me to a really sort of profound series of readings and encounters of his poetry, which which moved me greatly, and I, I, I ended up feeling he was a much better poet than um, others or even he had realised. But there was a poem which I was dating, um, sort of from internal evidence, uh, to about perhaps I thought 1927-28, but in fact um, Alistair McGrath in his new work on Lewis thinks it may be even earlier, maybe as early as 25. Um, it's certainly, whatever it is, it's written, as you will see very clearly in a minute, it's written before Lewis's conversion, and it gives the most extraordinary inner picture of the very thing he was referring to in that much later autobiography. Uh, it, in the collected poems, it's, it, when Hooper um, published it, it was titled Reason. I never felt that could possibly have been the right title, and I was very relieved when I spoke to Walter Hooper to discover that it wasn't the right title. Hooper had given it that title for convenience. Um, the actual holograph, the pencil manuscript of this poem, which was never published in Lewis's lifetime and only published posthumously, it has no title at all. I think it should be called Who, actually, rather than Reason. But let me read it to you. It's on the next slide. Um, just a little bit of background on this poem. Um, Lewis, uh, in this poem, uses a very beautiful extended metaphor or, or, or analogy. He's going to write about his own soul, and I think by implication ours, about the inner psyche of the human person. And he uses, as it were, a picture of ancient Athens as the model, and he contrasts the two great goddesses, Athene, 
and Demeter, they represent, in a sense, reason and imagination in, in, in the poem. And, of course, Athene's temple is the Acropolis, the beautifully, perfectly made, geometrically wonderful, utterly, if you like, rational, um, perfectly, really, you know, mathematically pure, um, open to the, to, the, to the unchanging lights of the stars and the heavens, up there on the top of the Acropolis. But, of course, as we know, in Athens, as well as that, Anybody who's read uh, the, that great book, The Greeks and the Irrational, will know this. Um, uh, there were the mystery religions. There were the the, 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 the the deep caves and the wells, and there were the, the senses of pouring out a sacrifice and waiting for a slow growth and all of that. And uh, Lewis suggests we have a kind of inner Athens with the, the height and the depth. Here's the poem. I think it's quite an exceptional poem. And, uh, to explain a lot about how, how mind works as well as how Lewis's mind works. So let me read it to you. Set on the soul's acropolis, the reason stands, a virgin armed, commercing with celestial light. And he who sins against her has defiled his own virginity. No cleansing makes his garment white. So clear is reason. But how dark imagining warm, dark, obscure and infinite, daughter of night, dark is her brow, and the beauty of her eyes with sleep is loaded, and her pains are long, and her delight. Tempt not Athene, wound not in her fertile pains Demeter, nor rebel against her mother right. Oh, who will reconcile in me both maid and mother? Who make a concord of the depth and height? Who make imagination's dim exploring touch ever report the same as intellectual sight? Then could I truly say and not deceive. Then wholly say that I believe. We'll perhaps just keep that text up there because I, I want to refer to it. I, I think that's an extraordinary poem uh, from many, many points of view. Um, and not least from this, that there's a kind of terribly sort of um, hand-me-down and cliched view of Lewis circulating, certainly among some academics in England who haven't travelled too deeply to read his works. Uh, that sort of wants to dismiss Lewis as this kind of um, old-fashioned, emotionally uptight, tweed-clad, probably misogynist Don, you know, no proper place for women in his stories, you know, uh, not one of us all. Uh, and um, I, I think this poem, in its extreme kind of openness and sensitivity, gives the light to that. Um, and not least in the way he figures the two chief powers of his... Um, configures, if you like, the two chief powers of his soul, that is to say his reason and imagination, both as feminine, both as goddesses, as essential feminine powers within this man that need in some sense to be reconciled. I mean, uh, you could sum up this poem as kind of Lewis saying, my basic problem is I can't get my inner goddesses together. So um, that certainly puts the lie to, to some of the sort of cliches that are spoken about, about men like Lewis. Um, but I think what is more extraordinary is this quest 
that lies behind this poem, this desire to resist what I call the epistemological apartheid of, of the modern age. He will not, as it were, sacrifice one of the goddesses for the other. He wants to respect both. Now, what he means by Athene, and what he means about what it would be to be sinning against Athena or, def Athena or defiling his own virginity, is he's saying, absolutely, I do not want to resist the genuine findings of actual reason and logic. I'm not going to say that two and two makes five if it just suits me. I'm not going to ignore what I understand to be the best science of my day. I'm not going to indulge in, in, in blindly, willful, willful blindness towards facts if they are established as facts, however inconvenient. I think that's very clear, and I think that's clear in how he hands his theology and his biblical teaching. He's not at all resistant to geological time. He's not a literalist. He's prepared to take seriously the actual findings of science, where it is good finding, where it is good science, and those are findings. And he is keen not to deny our capacity for logic and reason. So he's not simply trying to be a kind of, as some people did become, a kind of escapist romantic reactionary. So clear is reason. But neither is he willing to make the sacrifice that is asked of him by bleak modernity of dismissing the entire realm of myth, poetry, all of those things. So he compares sight with touch, height with depth, Athene with Demeter, how dark imagining, warm, dark, obscure and infinite Dark is her brow, the beauty of her eyes with sleep is low. Do you understand? It's all about dreams and dreaming. And I love this thing. Okay, tempt not Athene, but wound not in her fertile pains, Demeter. You can say here is she is the creative matrix, isn't she, out of which things are coming. Fertile pains is brilliant because it obviously refers both to labor pains, but also to the pains one takes over any, any work of art, any making. It's not, um, you know, something that thinks you're, you know, inspiration just happens. It's all about making and shaping, but it's shaped in a mystery and in the darkness and something new and living emerges. So he sees, as it were, the virgin armed, the, the pure purity and uh, unsullidness of pure reason, but he also sees this beautiful mother who brings forth things and he recognizes that they both have to do with truth and he wants to find that truth and that way of knowing truth which does honor to both the height and the depth. And he can't do it. That's his problem. This, this is, this is a poem of tension and agony. It simply asks the question: "Inside in me, both maid and mother, who make a concord of the depth and height? Who will do this?" And of course, it's just into that very tension uh, in Lewis's life, that unresolved thing of the sort of atheist shading into agnostic, possible transcendental idealist, but still very stuck and divided Lewis, into his life walks J.R.R. Tolkien. And they form this friendship and discover this mutual passion for northernness. And Lewis finds someone with whom he can at last talk about this many-islanded sea of myth and poetry. And eventually, Tolkien realizes that there's somebody here with whom he can share this extraordinary work that's going on. He's writing the, the lay of Baron and Luthien. And uh, eventually, he sends it to Lewis. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about their responses to that 
immediate sharing a little bit later. But Lewis uh, and Tolkien's friendship also led eventually to helping Lewis find an answer to this fundamental question, who will reconcile in me both maid and mother? And we know about this conversation. Uh, uh, it's been written about. It became quite a famous thing. Um, took place famously on Addison's Walk. There's a beautiful account of it in, in um, Humphrey Carpenter's Inkling's book. Um, but there are a number of other accounts reconstructed from the letters of a, a long night walk and talk with which Lewis had with Tolkien and Hugo Dyson. And um, they talked about many things, but one of the things that they talked about uh, was was Tolkien's faith, his Catholic faith, and um, of course a double whammy for Lewis as a, as a sort of Protestant Ulsterman and, and so on. But Lewis's mind very much opened by all that he knew and loved in, of Tolkien's love of myth. Uh, and Lewis, in his most rational mode, was arguing against Tolkien's faith and against the notion of the death of Christ meaning anything, um, because he says, I don't see how the, the death of some person 2,000 years ago, even supposing that person were raised again from the dead and one were to take the veracity of all the Gospels. I don't see how this episode in history makes any difference to me now. So many, you know, why should it affect me one way or the other? And Tolkien, of course, famously said to Lewis, how can you say that when you love myth so much? You you brought to tears by the story of, of the death of Baldur the Beautiful. You know, I heard a voice crying, Baldur the Beautiful is dead, is dead. All those stories of the dying and the rising God move you. You understand that something profound says, I love those things, but they're just myth. They're not true. They're lies, although they are lies breathed through silver. And Tolkien replied, they are not lies. And talked a little bit about what he was to expand later in Mythopoeia that he sent to Lewis. And uh, talked about the senses, the many senses in which myth and the shaping of the imagination carry truth. But of course he also went on to say that in the particular case for Lewis, Lewis's response to the death of Christ. He said, look, if you were to think of the death of Christ, not as history, but as myth, you would respond to it immediately. You would understand all that it disclosed. And um, can't you see, said Tolkien, that in this particular play, case, the myth you love, in all its mythic resonance, the great poema, the poem of descent and rising and of catastrophe and you all of that history that whereas a poet has as it were his own imagination the imagination of others and paper or music or sound as the medium in which to tell the story if the poet were god the the poet could actually write the poem into the fabric of history so it would be both myth and history imagination and fact, both something that you could get at your reason and rely on as an event in the world, but at the same time something that carried the full extra resonance of myth. And some saying this, of course, these, these two hemispheres of Tolkien's mind kind of quivering like a kind of magnetic pulse between them and going coming together and suddenly realizing this question, who will reconcile the maiden mother? What is it that I can access both with my reason 
and with my imagination. I make history. So in the story of the death and resurrection of Christ, for Lewis, as described by talking, suddenly these things came together. And um, I think this can't be emphasized enough. Obviously, I mean, I'm a Christian. I, I, I love to talk with, with, with other Christians who are fans of C.S. Lewis. But some Christians can become so concerned with a very personal Jesus who is their own drama of sin and redemption, which is all, believe me, I think very important, that they forget, as it were, the cosmic Christ, the Logos, the notion of one in whom or for whom or from whom all things cohere. The Eastern Church remembers that better. And I think it's really important to see that one of the things that suddenly was that this notion solved for him, if I can put it this way, an epistemological problem, a problem of knowledge, that he saw in the Gospels and in that sort at last a way of reconciling imagination and reason, myth and history, value or quality and quantity, these things. Okay. If Alistair McGrath is right, and this poem was written about 1956, he wrote the poem asking the question, and it took him about five years to realize the answer he was looking for. And um, you could say the answer was patterned into the very thing. I mean, in, in, as, as Talking, of course, pointed out, uh, would have, I don't know if he did this absolutely. I, I, we can't be sure whether Talking saw this poem. I think it would be very surprising if he didn't. But Talking would certainly have been the first to point out that the one who reconciled these heights and depths came into the world through one who was both a maid and a mother. Um, and we know from the end of Talking's great essay on fairy stories how far he saw the gospel itself as patterning you catastrophe. But it's certainly true, whatever the case, that Lewis as a writer and as an imaginative writer as well as as a, as a rational apologetic writer comes into his own at this point and sort of the two hemispheres of his mind begin working together. Now, it's an imaginative poem. He he imagines that his mind and his soul are Athens. Clearly, you know, from the point of view of logical reason, they're not Athens. But by make-believe, by, as it were, making this beautiful myth, weaving a couple of myths together, these beautiful inner powers, he said something about himself and about us, which was actually not only true but prophetic. The very idea that the poem contains his own answer, as it were, um, because, of course, it's almost echoing a bit of, of Ephesians about the one who reconciles in the depth. How did he do that? Well, let me let me flash back, if I may, to the same year that Keats wrote the letter to his friend Benjamin Bailey. Just without a big philosophical um, um, preamble, just as a sheer instinct, as a sheer sense of I, I feel what is the case when he said, I, I, I am convinced of nothing so much as the truth of imagination, and the sense that imagination is somehow getting there before reason. I, I can't get to the truth, he says, by a chain of reasoning, but I can get to it by an imaginative leap. That's what Keats is essentially saying. Well, Keats was not, he was a great poet, but not necessarily a great philosopher. But there was, as it happens, a great poet who was also a great philosopher, living at the same time, Alden Keats, they met on Hampstead Heath once, um, who in that very same year as the letter published an extraordinary book called Biographia Literaria. 
which laid down some principles of how the imagination works and why the imagination is in fact, along with the reason, a genuine instrument for finding out what is the case, for really knowing and making and shaping and intuiting truth. And that poet and philosopher was Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And I'd like to share with you a couple of passages now from Coleridge's uh, Biography Literaria from 1817, which we know were pertinent to both Lewis and Tolkien, uh, both because they read them directly, but also because their great friend, uh, Owen Barfield, had absorbed them utterly, and, and uh, a lot of Coleridge's thinking about the truth of imagination uh, flows to Lewis and Tolkien through Barfield. So let's go on, if we may, Serena, to a passage that begins, they and only they. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, I think this is a very remarkable passage, and um, it's very little known. Uh, the next passage from Coleridge, I'm going to quote, is quite famous and often quoted, but I haven't seen anybody um, quote this one. But it seems to me to be absolutely essential. So here it is. It's about what he calls the way in which the, imagine, the imagination is, as he calls it, a, a sacred power of self-intuition. So here is what he says. They and only they can acquire the philosophic imagination, the sacred power of self-intuition, who within themselves can interpret and understand the symbol. Here's the symbol. That the wings of the air sylph are forming within the skin of the caterpillar. Those only who feel in their spirits the same instinct, here it is, which impels the chrysalis of the horned fly to leave room in its involucrum for the antennae yet to come. They know and feel that the potential works in them even as the actual works on them. Now, that's a pretty dense and extraordinary passage. We can't perhaps go into all of it, but I just want you to look at that particular image about the chrysalis of the horned fly leaving room, as it were, as it makes this great outer carapace of the, of the chrysalis, this sludgy little thing, which is going to become this new creature with antennae. That before it has become that, before it's grown the antennae, as it were, it makes something, it shapes a new thing which at that point is just a shape, a holding space, as it were. And it, it shapes something that will hold the space and give a sense of the shape of the space for something which is yet to grow into it. So it has not yet become the potential, as it were. The potential is working in them, but something is being made, something is being shaped. The instinct which impels the chrysalis of the horned fly to leave room. It's a fascinating, this of course is a, a metaphor or a symbol, says Coleridge, for the imagination. Now isn't that an interesting idea? That as it were, our imagination is capable of not simply complementing our reason, but actually getting ahead of it. That we can imaginatively intuit and feel and as it were, creatively hold open a shape for a certain kind of knowledge, or even for a certain way of knowing that we haven't actually caught up with ourselves in our reason yet. As it were, the antennae 
are still growing, but the imagination has run ahead and made a space or a shape for them to grow into. That's a really remarkable idea. Uh, but I think it's been proven to be the case, it was the case for Lewis writing this poem and eventually coming to find out who that reconciler was. Um, uh, it's been the case again and again that a beautifully made and properly felt and imaginatively shaped sub-creation, which has its own rules and its own proper life and is not written with any kind of specific allegorical intention, nevertheless discloses to the author himself as well as to subsequent generations truth after truth as it were the growing antennae of which the author themselves in, in, in their reason was not capable hadn't actually physically thought through but somehow the imaginative shaping created the space in which it was possible. We'll, we'll see a little comment from Lewis shortly about, about how, how Lewis felt that working when he, when he heard The Lord of the Rings, you know, when he was its sole listener for a while and, and, uh, and, and had, it, had it read through to him. Um, so that's the first thing I wanted to take you to from Coleridge, that he's got this sense that the imagination is not only truthful, as Keats said, but actually vital and prophetic, and it's the imagination that makes the spaces which the reason grows into. I ought to add that actually if you talk to any really good scientist, and certainly if you talk to the very great ones, the Einsteins of this world, um, even in the most exacting sciences like mathematics, they will always tell you about imaginative leaps, which they then sort of do the working out of afterwards. And we know that the great scientific revolutions happen like that. So even the most apparently rational knowledge depends to some degree on a kind of truth-bearing capacity in the intuitive imaginative leap. Now the other little passage I want to just draw to your attention because I think it's well, well worth having in your mind um, even though it was written um, centuries earlier in about another work for understanding quite what Lewis and Tolkien and some of the other great mythopoetic writers are up to is also from the Biographia Literaria. Could we have the passage that says in this idea originated the plan? So this is also from Biographia Literaria, and in 1817, or probably rated about 15 um, or 16, and published in 17, he's looking back to the magical uh, years of late 18, uh, late 1797-98, when he and Wordsworth were writing the lyrical ballads, the, the book that changed the course of English poetry. And he suggests the two tasks they had, Coleridge and Wordsworth. But in looking at these two tasks, it seems to me Coleridge absolutely puts his finger on what great, if you like, fantasy writing, mythopoeic, imaginative writing, as well as great uh, natural writing is about and what it does. And this absolutely, in my view, nails it. It gives the lie to the false idea, which is still current in our age, that imaginative work has nothing to do with objective truth and is only private and is a kind of lulling the mind into some sort of narcotic inner fantastical compensation for the sheer grimness of what's out there and doesn't tell us anything about what is the case. That's a lie. That's, that's kind of what we're all brought up to believe. Actually, if we try to look at the world without our imagination, we get a, a false picture of what it is. We need our imaginations to work on it. So let's look at what, what, what he says, because I think I can't do it all in the course of this lecture, but I'm sure you could 
those of you particularly with, with, with a sort of really detailed knowledge of, of Tolkien's sub-creation will we'll, we'll immediately see what's going on here. So here it is, let's hear it. In this idea, says Coleridge, originated the plan of the lyrical ballads, in which it was agreed that my endeavours should be directed to persons or characters supernatural or at least romantic, yet so as to transfer, listen to this, so as to transfer from our inward nature a human interest and a semblance of truth sufficient to procure for these shadows of imagination that willing suspension of disbelief which for the moment constitutes poetic faith. Very famous quotation. Mr. Wordsworth, on the other hand, was to propose to himself as his object to give the charm of novelty to things of every day and to excite a feeling, this is very key, a feeling analogous to the supernatural by, great phrase here, by awakening the mind's attention from the lethargy of custom and directing it to the loveliness and the wonders of the world before us. An inexhaustible treasure but for which, in consequence of the film of familiarity and selfish solicitude, we have eyes yet see not, ears that hear not, and hearts that neither feel nor understand. So, um, you'll see immediately both the thing about the fantastical or the supernatural, Coleridge is here referring to his own great ballad, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, um, with characters like the nightmare, life and death, and, and, and the ghost ship, and so on. Um, that you can write about something which apparently, you know, factually or objectively in the outer world doesn't exist, but in fact, your writing is full of truth, because as he says, you transfer from our inward nature a human interest uh, um, sufficient and a semblance of truth sufficient to procure for these shadows of imagination that willing suspension of disbelief. In other words, what's out there is in here, and what's in here bodies and clothes itself in what's out there. So that's something I'm sure you'll all recognize as you read in the world of talking and this. Uh, but look at the second thing about what Wordsworth does. I think, by the way, Lewis and talking both do both of these things. Now, um, we're familiar with Wordsworth's great poetry about the, the sheer marvel and beauty of nature. But let's see what uh, Coleridge thinks is going on when we read that kind of imaginative poetry. He says, awakening the mind's attention. That's the first thing. Great poetic and imaginative writing is not a narcotic. It's not about dulling. It's not about And it's not about escaping. It's about awakening, awakening the mind's attention. And um, then he talks about directing it. So it's awakened and it's directed to the loveliness and wonders of the world before us, an inexhaustible treasure, but for which, in consequence of the film of familiarity and selfish solicitude, we have eyes yet see not, ears that hear not, hearts that neither feel nor understand. Now, I think that's a really great phrase of, of um, Coleridge's there, the film of familiarity. It's as though sheer familiarity and also the kind of dull, this kind of dull film over things. But actually, that means that the, the dull, objective, you know, merely mechanistic way we see them is not in fact the truth about them. The truth about them is something 
constantly forming and, and beautiful and inexhaustible. And what the poetry and the imaginative writing does is to take away the film of the familiar and suddenly awaken the mind. Now, I have that experience uh, in actually whenever I read talking, I suppose for me one of the one of the places, one of the sort of kind of locus classicus for that is that bit when one gets into the garden of, of into the realm of Lothlarien and um, somebody says, I felt like over a bridge in time into the older days. And there is an acute sense of everything, the light through the leaves of the sound of the river, suddenly as it were, and then when they go out of again, it's almost as a dull sort of film thrown over everything again. That, as it were, quality of the intensity of the Lothlorien experience would, in Coleridge's view, be actually a restoration of a vision, at least for a moment, of how things actually are, if only we And Lewis certainly took that view. There's a great passage in his um, writing room where he about uh, he defends himself from the charge of escapism and he says that he wants to write about an enchanted wood in not in such a way that when the child leaves the enchanted wood it's an imaginary world the child then discovers that every wood is a little bit more enchanted that the very notion of what wood is what tree is what starlight is 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 clarified and cleansed and given something of its true life again by the experience of it in the other world. And the power of that to transform is, of course, one of the things in Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, where he sees things transfigured under the moonlight. So I want to place Lewis and Tolkien as, as in that tradition, as a maturing and a flowering of that tradition, which was a reaction against the split we all still live with, which men like Coleridge pioneered, and which enabled one to claim confidently that one was not engaged in falsehood or escapism, but rather one was using the imagination itself as an instrument with which to examine reality. Now to bring us, I need to stop so we can have some questions, but just to bring us back directly, I'm hoping that you'll draw a lot of the threads of connection yourselves between this Coleridgean material I'm giving you and, and the way Lewis and Tolkien write. But um, we know of that uh, Tolkien eventually had the courage to show the lay of Baron and Luthien and reveal a bit of this whole his whole subcreative world in the twenties, late twenties to, to Lewis, uh, which is an incredibly risky thing to do, you know. And Lewis loved it and treasured it, and for a long time, as Tolkien says, Lewis was his only reader. Um, and uh, in 1929, uh, Lewis wrote a letter to Tolkien. I think I have this on a slide as well. In the in-between time, it's been when he wrote his poem about, about reason and imagination, Lewis's poem, and before talking, it had the, the great talk with him that helped Lewis himself to, to answer what was going on in that poem. Um, Lewis wrote in response to uh, reading Tolkien's mythos, the great myth he was writing, um, the two things that come out clearly are the sense of reality in the background and the mythical value the essence of this is a great passage from this the essence of a myth being that it should have no taint of allegory to the maker and yet should suggest incipient allegories to the reader that 
right to the heart. This is before the Lord of the Rings has even been written, but you, you can see this again and again in the Lord of the Rings. Indeed, Lewis returned to this phrase when he came to review the Lord of the Rings. Um, what this is criticizing in allegory is the idea that you already know with your reason. You know, you don't need to grow any new antennae or have any shapes, you know, made for you by imagination that you haven't yet filled. You just know what you want to say, proposition A, and then you just mechanically in the allegory translate it into so-called fantasy world B, it goes into B, and then when you have the key, whatever the allegory is supposed to be, you can take it out of B, and it just becomes A again, just like it was, completely untransformed by its dip into the imaginative world. That is allegory at its worst, and uh, I don't believe that at their best, either Lewis or Tolkien are ever guilty of that. On the contrary, what they're doing is letting the, the shaping spirit of the imagination make the great shape into which, as it were, the antennae of our understanding will eventually grow, which will hold that space open. And um, we can see this again and again. I mean, the most famous example of the incipient allegory, um, but there's no taint of it. The essence of myth should have no taint of allegory to the maker, yet it suggests incipient allegory to the reader. Lots of people, when the Lord of the Rings came out, as you know, thought that the, the ring and how to lose the ring and not using the enemies was all about the, the invention of atomic weapons and, 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 you know, it was about it. And obviously, Tolkien had written it long before these things were even a possibility or he'd shaped the, the mythos in his mind. But of course, by writing a true myth, by writing fully and honestly with all the intuition that imagination would provide, he had provided the kind of shape exactly that allows us to think through those issues. And you can see it again and again. I, I, uh, I find all the time there are moments in the Lord of the Rings that, complete, that bring me to truth in the sense that they clarify something for me permanently. So I'm finding, for example, the conversation which takes place between um, Gandalf and Saruman at the time when Saruman imprisons Gandalf, absolutely expresses to me what I would regard as the tragedy of the Enlightenment project and of modernism. And um, when when Saruman says, you know, the white light can be broken, the white page can be printed, and 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 uh, Gandalf replies, "He who breaks a thing to find out what it's made of has left the path of wisdom." If you could only think long and hard enough about what that means, about the way in which we've broken and destroyed, about the way in which our analytical reason has dissolved even the human person into parts and doesn't know how to put them back together again. There's just a huge analysis in that one sentence of where we are. Prophetic, absolutely prophetic. And yet I don't think there's any taint of, of, of kind of talking, thinking, oh, this will be a useful analogy for later, and he just writes what is true at that moment, true to his characters. And within that truth, all kinds of other truths become available to us, as it were, through the instrument of his imagination. And, I mean, just to take another example at random, you know, the the, the, um, the whole destruction of Isengard and the fact that it's, the machines are destroyed by something or by the trees and that it involves flood, I mean, goodness knows how true that is becoming for us. And then, of course, perhaps the deepest thing in the whole uh, uh, shape of that narrative uh, is the fact that he was moved so early and at that point to write an epic quest of letting go. When almost every other quest story with which he was acquainted in the great tree of tales was a quest to find and acquire 
and to recognize that this, I mean, this is why I think both Lewis and talking, and talk about talking now particularly, are, are prophetic. I don't think they're behind their times. I think they're vastly ahead of their times. I think the thing that will, the only thing which will allow us to survive the 21st century is when we understand the quest of letting go, when we understand what it is to let go, what it is to accept mortality, what it is, as it were, to dwindle and go into the West, what it is to to be the size that we are and live alongside the creatures that we do and not to seek constantly to extend our life till, it, till it's uh, spread out as the Bible says, you know, like butter spread over too, too, too much bread, the whole course somehow we deal with our mortality. All there, not because there is a taint of allegory, but because there are these incipient myths suggested. Now I'll just finish um, uh, with uh, uh, the reply to that, that as it were, the talking sent, which was to share the poem, Mytho Poeia, and I think a lot of what we're saying and a lot of what Coleridge is saying and Barthold is saying is summed up. I'm sure many of you will be very familiar with this, the heart of man. This is a rebuff to all to Thomas Brown and the Royal Society and those who were criticizing Keats and all those who said the imagination is just merely lies. The heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise and still recalls him. Though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned, and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned. His world dominion by creative act not his to worship the great artifact, man, sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. And I think what we have to do with celebrating is how those shapes that move from mind to mind are not simply fantastical, but truth-bearing. Uh, thank you for being so patient to a long discourse. Thank you so much, Malcolm. That's beautiful. What a lot of lovely threads you've drawn together and um, bringing in some earlier poets that we don't necessarily all think of when we think of the Inklings. It's really beautiful. We have, we have several um, questions here. Well, I'd be very happy to respond to those. Which I will bring up. Um, and a lot of, a lot of themes here that, that I really like and I know you've written about in other places too, so I might point some of those places out as we go through. The, um, the right. first couple of questions that came through are more just comments, sort of sharing and resonating with what you said. Joyce Sturgill wrote, when I stand in front of Dali's Last Supper, hear the overture to Tannhäuser, see the sunset across the Gulf of Mexico, my reactions are an emotional awe and wonder of the beauty. I can later reason what I love, but reason does not explain that sense of awe. Is that somewhat yes. similar to Lewis's divide, or is Joyce actually Absolutely. Well, I, think, I think what she's saying is exactly what Keats is saying in that letter, where he says, you leap to it because of beauty. The imagination seizes as beauty. What, what the imagination seizes as beauty must be true. And then he says, I was never yet able to perceive how anything can be known for truth by consecutive reasoning. I think he means consecutive reasoning alone there. So I, I think you have to trust that sense of, of well, I mean, Keats puts it in one of his poems, of course, truth is all you and all you need to know. So I think we must never, it's really unfortunate that we invented the word aesthetics, because aesthetics then becomes some little department that we can talk about and analyze. 
as though it weren't actually <coughs> a kind of guiding beacon. Mm -hmm. Now, is this distinction between reason and imagination either similar to or at least in partnership with the distinction that Lewis talks about between contemplation and enjoyment? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think I think there's an analogy. I think um, Lewis distincts, distinguishes in contemplation between looking at and looking along, as it were. And you could say that it's imagination which looks, as it were, along the beam and just goes directly into the experience. And reason that sort of looks at it from the outside and says, I can. I think, you know, one of the things that Coleridge said is he said, it's a philosopher's privilege to distinguish but not to divide. And these distinctions are very useful, but actually we must never imagination. I didn't give you the bit from Coleridge later on, which would take a whole other lecture, where he finally says what he thinks imagination actually is. Mm. Um, and famously in 13 he says, imagination is the most startling thing you could ever hear him say. He says, imagination is the living power and prime agent of all perception. Not all making up nice stories, he thinks that's what he calls second imagination, all perception. So he's actually saying that just to perceive the world at all, just to see that sunset, to look at the Last Supper, for you to perceive my face and me to perceive yours, is a kind of imaginative act. My dog is joining in there in the general commentary there. Uh, so so um, all perception involves both imagination and reason, I think. Now, Jennifer Visick gave a comment here about the poem, and I was thinking the same thing, Jennifer. She said that Lewis's poem about reason and imagination reminded her strongly of Till We Have Faces. And I was absolutely yeah. thinking that this is the distinction that Lewis works on unifying through his whole life. And specifically, I thought of that essay, I can't remember the name right now, in which Lewis makes the distinction between thick religions and clear religions. Yeah. And those are very much the rational and then the visceral religion. Yeah, I absolutely think there is a relation between two, two we have faces. Not least, of course, the Greek setting and so on, and the notion that the goddesses have something to teach us. Um, he was uh, fascinated by the myth of Cupid and Psyche from the various times. One of the things I had discovered, in, in well, I personally discovered, but it was a discovery to me, uh, it was that he had attempted to write... Um, as it were, an early till we have faces, or a kind of telling the story in poetry, as quite a young man. So he never quite let that story go. And perhaps I should, I should, that prompts me to say, when I say that as a result of the conversation with Tolkien and his, his conversion, he, as it were, found out who would do this reconciling, I wouldn't want to give the impression that after that he rests on his laurels and everything is sorted and there's no more questing. I mean, one of the things that I think is really powerful in Lewis, and he's not given credit enough for this, is that he's not ever one of those irritating Christians who sits there smugly and says, I've found the answer, you know, when are you going to catch up? As, and, you know, one of those people for whom arriving at a faith is a kind of stasis. Mm -hmm. I mean, he really understands that theology is, uh, you know, as Anselm said, fides quaerens, intellectual faith, seeking understanding. And right through Lewis, especially towards the end of his life, you know, about grief observing himself, he's always looking, he's always saying, I don't yet have it, 
I'm still shaped. I have the clues. I have the keys. But but there is always a mystery beyond me. And that I think even there in the you know in the last battle with that great mantra of further up and further in. And I, I, Lewis actually thought Till We Have Faces was his, his masterpiece. He couldn't understand why it wasn't as popular as the other ones because he, he thought that was the best thing and the most honest thing that he'd written. But it may have been too honest for some of his readers. Yeah, I agree with him. I agree with him. Joyce Sturgill adds a comment here about imagination, asking, isn't imagination that which gives us the ability to think of tomorrow? the imaginative creating of a time which has not yet come, but which we anticipate. Um, yes, I think that's true in the sense that we imagine possibilities for tomorrow, and we can only, in a sense, consider tomorrow at all through the realm of imagination. I would like to make a distinction, though, between the kind of, if you like, rigid mechanistic predicting and a kind of futurology that that concerns itself entirely with wanting to know exactly what tomorrow's devices will look like. Which I wouldn't say was, was, was I wouldn't say was truly imaginative, I think it's simply fanciful. I think there's a lot of so-called writing about the future which is simply unimaginatively taking what we've got and extending it on a line of development that we've already seen. I think the really great imaginative leaps that help us to think about the future often often don't pose themselves as being about the future at all. They might be about the past. They, might, you know, they simply imagine about other possibilities. Um, so I, I think uh, but we certainly need to be able to imagine possibilities for ourselves in order to be able to, um, to keep on living. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I'm glad you said that. I'm going to, back, uh, to jump on that and do a little bit of shameless self-promotion here. Um, a lot of the audience know that I'm editing a book called The Inklings and King Arthur. What you may not know is that Malcolm wrote the concluding chapter to that book. And I also want to say hi to Taylor Driggers, who's here today and wrote one of the chapters. Um, but Malcolm, your concluding chapter is exactly about that. It's about how the Inklings' imaginative insight enabled them to write things that were very, very prophetic. They were not setting out to do that. They were not sitting down saying, let's see, what's going to happen in the future. In a couple cases, perhaps they were. But in the majority of cases, they were, as you say, writing the truth as they saw it at the time, and their imaginative in insight enabled them to say things that are startlingly relevant for our moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, going referring back to the... I think it's fascinating how all the Inklings were themselves fascinated by the Arthurian material, the Natural of Britain, and of course that book was prompt, the book to which you refer is prompted by the, the publication of, of Tolkien's um, version of the Fall of Arthur. I think there's something deeply appealing about the notion of Arthur himself as Rex Quandam Rex Futuri, that he was the once and future king. Mm -hmm. And um, the notion of trying to imagine, the very act of trying to think about Arthur as a future king, whilst also thinking him as this deeply embedded mythic king of the past, is itself such a stretch of the imagination that it allows you to to to, to come upon new possibilities. And um, uh, it's fascinating in that book to see how Arthur has himself been reimagined by each age. Each age that writes about Arthur writes both about itself and about its hopes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. 
Okay, here is a really big question from Kevin Hensler. This is a huge one, so we'll have to just give the short answer. Well, Kevin, the answer is yes, but I'll read the question anyway. <laughs> Kevin says, I'm very interested. Did any of these people you're speaking of ever present a coherent theology of religion or at least present enough ideas that we can put one together? Now, he goes on to say more what he means. How did these brilliant men fit religions to which they did not subscribe into their worldview? I know Lewis thought there was something divine at work in other traditions, but I'm not sure if he ever clarified that point. Well, he did to some extent, Kevin. So, Malcolm, you want to speak a bit about their views on other religions? Yeah, okay. So, I assume that what you mean by theology of religions is a theology of other religions. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think... Um, I think the first thing to grasp is that they, if we're thinking particularly about Lewis and Tolkien, is that they both thought ultimately, although he was three in one, that there was one God who created all things. Now, if you believe that, and if you believe the kind of things that, that Christian theology asserts, like he is the light that lightens everyone that comes into the world and that, that kind of thing, you really have two choices. You can think that this God who was created everything and the vestiges of whom and signs of whom are everywhere, suddenly decided that he would only disclose anything about himself ever to one tiny little group of people on one planet at one point, you know, and that would be it and everybody else is thus wailing in darkness. And that seems extremely unlikely. Or you can take the view that although as a Christian you believe that the utter fullness of who he is is disclosed in the personal work of Christ, that, to quote St. Paul, he has not left himself without witness. And one of the most fascinating things, I mean, people often look at the bit of, you know, in the last battle where there's somebody who seems to be a Muslim, but I think the really interesting thing is when the character Ransom on Mars is gearing himself up as a kind of good Christian missionary to think, I'm really going to have to tell these Martians a bit about Jesus, you know. And they take him aside and say, hey, can we tell you about the creation of the world? And he begins to see that they've already got an entire theology which is utterly resonant with it, but the missing bit, and he will tell about Jesus, but, but the missing bit, because they haven't seen it, because it's on the side of the planet, is the bit, bit that he holds. But his, his hold on what he thinks he knows is quite powerfully modified by the things that he learns from them. So, uh, your sense of one God who is a creator of the cosmos ought to make you very large-minded. Unfortunately, it sometimes has made some people small-minded. Um, now, that is not in any way to compromise the uniqueness of the claims of a particular faith in Christ. I'm very strong on that. But I, I you know, I, we have to do, in my view, in Christian theology, I certainly think Lewis and talking about this, with one for whom and from whom all good things come. And that wherever you find a good thing, you can trace it back to its source in God. And that includes a good person who doesn't share your faith. Um, Kevin, a good place to look for this is the chapter on history in Lewis's Pilgrim's Regress, a book that's unfortunately often overlooked. It's a difficult book to read. You know, it's, it's very plodding allegory sometimes. Right, right, exactly. Um, but there's a new there's a new annotated edition of it out by David Downing um, that might be helpful. But check out the question. It's called History Explains or John's Talk with History, something like that. Yeah. Um, that chapter might be where Lewis gets the most explicit about that question. Um, okay, we have another question sort of about literary history here from Dan Kinney. He wants to know, 
Why do you think that the role of imagination and the truth contained therein goes through a period of regression in literary criticism? We seem to be in a period of regression right now where this concept is not taken seriously, especially in genres like fantasy. Um, well, that's a very big question as well. Um, I think literary criticism in the last um, sort of 30 years or so has been through one of its periodic bouts of intense theory and theorizing. Um, and a lot of that theorizing is actually almost an attempt to evade meaning rather than to uh, express it. Lewis, I didn't quote this, but later in his, in later say Lewis had a brilliant way of bringing reason and imagination together in a literary critical essay where he says, he says reason is the natural organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. You can know that a thing is true by reason, but you need imagination to know what it means. Fascinating in itself. But I think what happened was that um, kind of following the collapse in the sense of completely Marxist critical theory, um, it went, then went into a series of phases of essentially um, structuralist and then de deconstructive theory, which was all about asking the mechanical outside question of how it is that certain kinds of discourse get written almost as though you didn't care what they were actually saying, you simply wanted to say what they said about the people who were writing on them. And uh, that became so obsessive that in a sense it became almost a sin to talk about, well, to talk about the text saying something other than what was constructed or deconstructed out of it. Um, and uh, I think that was just a kind of obsessive and slightly blind alley. And it's interesting that a lot of the people who took that view and deconstructed, as it were, every meaning and relativized everything. Now don't take that view at all. I mean, the, 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 example, the best example of that, so I think there will be a recovery and a return to a much better and more lucid literary criticism with a place for imagination. I mean, an example of that would, would, would be George Steiner, um, who, who did take a very good view and then wrote an extraordinary book called Real Presences, where he, he summarizes the view and you think, oh, it's another Steiner book saying there's nothing in what we say. Uh, and then he does it for about two paragraphs, and then the third paragraph begins, the purpose of this essay is to argue the reverse. You know, and he goes on to say that every act of communication is a wager on the transcendent. And he so attacks critical writing, he says the only proper response to a creative imaginative work is another creative imaginative work. And unless we do a work of creation which exposes us in some sense and risks who we are as we write it, then we're not making a proper response to the work of art. Mm -hmm. So there's hope. Great. Yeah, I see a change, too, in academia's approach to fantasy and to giving it more and more of a place in the college and university curriculum, which is one way of gauging the response, the, ac the academy's response to these things as well. Um, any more questions? I have one more here that I will ask, but if there are any other final questions anybody wants to send in um, right now, and while they're doing so, Karita Alexander just has a nice straightforward question. What are some books that you would recommend on this topic, or just something you wish people were more familiar with? Uh, okay, well, I, I needn't tell you that, that Tolkien's essay on fairy stories is a great thing. Lewis's essay on three ways of writing for children discusses this whole question of whether fantasy is escapist or whether it conveys truth. So I would, I would strongly commend that. Um, I, I think. Um, 
I mean, if I can, can um, <laughs> be allowed to say so, I, I discuss a little bit of the history of this in a lot more detail on how we can get out of it on, in the introduction to my book, Death, Hope and Poetry. And if you want to know more about Coleridge and where he's coming from and the real details on that, I mean, there's a lot of huge tomes on Coleridge. But I did try in one in a chapter called uh, something like Following Coleridge to the Source or something like that. Uh, and there's a chapter in that book, the sixth chapter, I think, in Faith, Hope and Poetry, where I try as best I can to summarize what Coleridge has to offer in giving us a kind of theology of imagination. So um, I'm sure you could get that out of the library. Um, I hope so. Um, Carl Pearson asks, why is Wordsworth in the quote provided so interested in unsettling what is familiar, as though it is not familiarity and tradition that are the matrices in which our imaginations are shaped? Or, to put it another way, Wordsworth's rejection of the old seems much more in line with enlightenment or modern thought than with the imaginative roots in the past. Can you comment on the role of tradition? Okay. So yes, important yes, yes. Um, Yes, sorry, I, I, I certainly wouldn't want to, well, this is, of course, first of all, this is not Wordsworth himself writing, this is Coleridge remembering afterwards what he, what yeah. he thought he Wordsworth were up to. But I, I think, I don't think that's what Coleridge is quite trying to say. What he says here is, Mr. Wordsworth, on the other hand, was proposed to himself as his object to give the charm of novelty to things of every day. Now, that didn't mean that he was rejecting the old. On the contrary, it was the old, everyday, ordinary thing that you'd always had, which Wordsworth wanted you to suddenly see as marvellous and magical. He wanted to excite in you a feeling analogous to the supernatural about a piece of bread and cheese or the peasant walking down the road and the leech gatherer and, the, you know. We now, because Wordsworth has transfigured our view of nature, we, we, you know, we, we, we think, but actually, when Wordsworth was writing, people didn't care to go up mountains and look at them, and they didn't think anything was right. You know, they wanted a nice, neat garden all set out in curious little kind of ornamental knots, and they, they regarded that as wild and rugged and uncivilized, and they didn't take any interest in the lives of ordinary people. And the whole point about the lyrical ballads and the language of the lyrical ballads was that it was taking the everyday, which is not necessarily the novel, and saying, there is magic here. There is form. There is beauty. All of these things, and it was it was he was saying to the refined people in their you know highly artificial lives, drinking cups of tea from porcelain, you know, in the great houses, and thinking that you know only in beautiful, august, and classical things was there. He was he was saying, look out of your window and really look, and you will find the sublime and the extraordinary and you will f experience a feeling, uh, I mean, Coleridge delicately puts it, he says, analogous to the supernatural. Actually, I think they both felt that it was, could be a direct experience of the supernatural. Hmm. Hmm. Well, this last question is actually, I'd say, about the same thing, um, but it's, it's phrased in a really needy way. Taylor Driggers has a theory-based question here. Lots of the material in the lecture reminded him of Derrida's later writings about the anticipation and coming of the quote-unquote impossible, which he yeah. sometimes gives the name of God, and which Taylor personally feels resonates strongly with what Tolkien called eucatastrophe. So where yeah. do we position or locate the mythic imagination in relation to our own age's more post-structuralist discourse? Okay, that's a heavy theory question. I think... Uh, 
I'm going to be controversial here. Uh, right. Um, there's a great saying of William Blake's. It's actually one of the proverbs of hell, but it's still a good saying. Um, which is, uh, if the fool persists in his folly, he will become wise. He also says the road to excess leads to the palace of wisdom. And I think the later Derrida is rather like actually the later George Steiner, and for that matter, Umberto Eco. The people who began by completely deconstructing any notion of intrinsic meaning in things. I mean, Derrida famously uh, said, uh, il, il n'y a pas texte. There's nothing outside the text. I once heard that translated as language is outsideless. One word means another word means another word, but it never actually crashes out into anything that is the case. Now, I think that bleak view. I think it's wrong, and I think it. it I mean, I remember uh, seeing an interview with Seamus Heaney when he was teaching in Harvard and was beginning to have to deal with this stuff, which you know, and he said, "These men are undermining the word hoard," and then he added, "It's Derry versus Derrida." So, uh, but. Actually, as you say, Derrida, like Echo and Steiner, kind of stayed with that kind of bleak reductio until they suddenly thought, actually, there is something beyond this. There is a surprise. There is another. There is a disclosure which is beyond, you know, the mere shorings up and bricolage of our bits and pieces. Now, they were very reluctant, like most mystics, to actually say what it was or to allow, and they would have been deeply suspicious of any idea that it could be formulated in one way. But they did seem somehow to point towards it. And I think that's a fascinating thing that you've just said about maybe it's a bit like eucatastrophe. Because the point about eucatastrophe is it's not discernible within the system. It's not predictable. It's not something that you could read out of the text of your story so far. And yet when it comes... It's utterly right and irreplaceable, even though it was unpredictable. Yeah. All right. Well, very well said. That was a good deep dive for us to end with, I think. Wow, um, yeah. So, <laughs> very, very well asked, everybody. Very well answered, Malcolm. So, thank you very much for this beautiful lecture. I hope everyone is inspired to go out and read your book and read more Coleridge and the Romantics in connection with the Inklings. Um, and everybody, please do share the link to this with everybody you know on social media, and I hope to see you again next year when we pick up the guest lecture series again. So, good night, everybody. Thank you very much, Malcolm. All right. Goodbye.